One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The following podcast contains content some listeners may find distressing. If you find you are impacted by the issues raised, support is available at a number of places. Please refer to the episode notes for more details. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk with Paddy Wivell, award-winning film director and producer, about his experience making the recent Channel 4 series, Prison, a behind-the-scenes exploration of life at HMP Durham and HMP Foston Hall. Hello, I'm Paddy Wivell. I'm a producer, director. I've been making documentary films for the BBC and Channel 4 for about 20 years. And over the last few years, I've been making films uh, in the prison estate, first of all in HMP Durham, I did three films for Channel 4 and then did a return series at a women's prison, HMP Foston Hall, uh, which has gone out earlier this year on Channel 4. And what led you to the prison work? Well, I was rung and asked whether it was something I was interested in doing by um, a Channel 4 commissioning editor. And it's something that I've always wanted to, to do, is to be able to make films within the prison estate. I think when I was a kid, I was at school, I, I, I picked up books by... Um, Jimmy Boyle um, and was it Larry Winters, who were in the Barlini special unit, and that really caught my imagination when I was at school. And I spent some time writing to prisoners, actually, when I was a schoolboy, which is slightly strange. But, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so it's always something I was sort of interested in. I mean, I went to a boarding school in uh, the north of Scotland, and I think there's probably some crossover there. Do you know what? A lot of people say that. I have no idea because I went to um, a co-ed day school. So I think my experience was probably somewhat different. But you're not the first person to have said that to me. No, it sounds a bit flippant. But there are some overlaps in the sense that sometimes you, you're sent, sent away uh, against your will. You're in an institution surrounded by people of the same sex. And obviously you can't go home at night. So there are certain things that are, that are mm. kind of familiar, actually, when you go when I went back to Durham. And just the sort of institutional kind of routines and the regime of things felt quite familiar in a way, although completely different. I mean, I would say my, you know, my my boarding school was a bit like Ballstall, but it had a, had a really fancy climbing wall. That's what it felt like. <laughs> and the access that you got in both these programmes, but if we start with HMP Durham first, which is a male prison, you know, the access that you guys managed to get was was quite different. You know, there's been lots of yeah. prison documentaries made, but I think what stood out with yours was the fact that it seemed to be kind of, would you say fly on the wall or would you sort of say kind of 
camera on the shoulder. Very much camera on the shoulder, yeah. It's observational in a sense, but actually a lot of the material is made up of my interactions with people. So it's quite conversational. I'm not sort of hanging back and just observing. I'm very, very involved. Yeah. There hadn't been a, a documentary series made in the prison in England and Wales for five years and before um, we got access to HMP Durham. Okay, because that's yeah. strange because it feels like they're coming out all the time, but maybe it's just the timing. Yeah, yeah. they are. They, they are now. Um, but at the time, there hadn't been something done for quite some time. And uh, I think the access that we got was largely due to the kind of relationship I struck up with the then governor um, of HMP Durham, uh, Tim Allen. And when I met him, he said... I just don't think our staff are getting recognised for the work they do in really extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Right. So from his point of view, I was I was really welcome. Um, I was really surprised at the level of access I got. I mean, within days, you know, I was given a set of keys, had a little bit of training, and then I was just allowed off with me and uh, a couple of others to, to go and find my stories. Amazing. So. Uh, yeah, I felt very privileged to get that level of access and to, to try and win the trust of the staff and, and the inmates. And when it comes to the inmates, how did they take to you? I mean, you know, it's a sort of big male prison, you know, and then there's a guy from the media wandering around with a camera, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> what was the reception you got? Yeah, pretty welcome, actually, because obviously people are quite, you know, it's such a regimented world in there and there's, you know, so much time spent in their cells that people are kind of like quite eager and curious and quite happy to to talk. I mean, the first thing I did when I got in there was I thought like we've got, I think it was something like eight or nine wings in Durham. And I thought um, I'm going to have to find a way to win over primarily the staff to allow me then access onto their wings. So I spent about three weeks without the camera going from wing to wing, talking to staff and talking to prisoners and trying to say, I think we've got a shared agenda here because I felt that elsewhere in television, uh, staff had been, like nursing staff or police, had all been uh, looked at by documentary teams in the past and were really celebrated in the media for the work they did. And I felt that in many ways, the prison officers were working for a service that was out of the front line and weren't really, wasn't really in the public consciousness. So I thought it was a really worthwhile activity for us to look at the work they did and to celebrate the work that they did and, and to recognise that that hadn't been celebrated. Mm. So whenever I went wing to wing, I was just saying, I think we can work together because I think we, you know, there's a, there's a shared agenda uh, that will then allow me to have the deep kind of access that I really wanted to get so I could properly observe life both sides of the prison door both with staff and with prisoners right so I sort of I, I quite systematically sort of went about trying to earn the trust of the prisoners and the staff and I only really started to get the camera out once I felt that I had enough trust to start to introduce the camera because it's, it's a huge intrusion I think for any yeah. institution is suddenly to have a camera around and people can feel very exposed and and nervous. What I was going to ask was, if the officers did have any sort of hesitance about you being there, what were the, were there any sort of big obvious reasons why or sort of pushback from anyone who didn't want you there? Yeah, I mean, there was just a general anxiety about what we'd be filming. And 
there's certain things that would come up quite a lot. Like the officers would say quite often, you know, we use quite like blue language with the, with the prisoners. We don't want that coming across. Or okay. there'll be there'll be quite, you know, genuine concerns about, well, I come from, you know, I live on an estate where some of these prisoners live and there might be repercussions for me. So the, there was a whole range of anxieties and it meant that, you know, a number of staff, any, any staff that said, don't film me, I wouldn't film. So there was sort of some genuine sort of anxieties there that needed listening to. But um, quite often I find once I'm in an institution like that and I get to know people on a personal level, that people's hesitancy abates a little bit a few weeks in once they get the sort of sense of what I'm about and what I do. And as much as possible, you know, I point them in the way of films that I've made in the past. So they get a sense sort of tonally of what I'm what I'm looking for. Yeah. And actually what's nice about making these films is that, you know, I make them over months and years. And actually what you can do is, is let an authentic kind of relationship take over. So I'm not just pitching and selling what I'm going to do. You're actually, you're hanging around enough to get to know people personally. And then a sort of a real level of trust emerges. And that then allows me to get those sort of moments that feel so true and genuine to the experience of being in prison. I really wanted the audience watching to really feel like they were living on these landings in the way that I was. And I wanted to get these stories both sides of the door that would ring true to both prisoners and officers. What I really wanted to avoid, actually, was I see a lot of documentaries that really play to a certain uh, prejudice or anxiety amongst the public, which is namely everybody in prison is evil and bad and they're all rapists and they're all murder you know actually that's not what's going on in our prisons and so I wanted to make a series of films that were as far away from that as possible that would really reveal how the system works um, and how it doesn't work in a modern context that spoke truthfully to, to the experience that both prisoners and officers are having at the moment. And I think that really came across because you know what I get very frustrated is about is people sort of saying, well, you know, they're there because they committed a crime, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, what I always say is it's kind of like shifting your lens of how you look at a prison. So now I look at prisons after 20 years of sort of working in and around them as places of employment primarily. And actually, if you take that sort of slightly more clinical view of a prison, it is a place of employment. So it shouldn't be dirty. It shouldn't be chaotic. It shouldn't be violent. Nobody's workplace should. And if it is, then as a matter of urgency, that should change. And when you actually say that to people, I think they go, oh, I've never really thought about it like that. Because actually it's so emotion inducing, sort of talking about crime and talking about rapists and murderers and, well, they deserve everything that they get, that people get blinded to that. that. That is literally the only thing they see. They just sort of feel all that raw emotion of, well, someone deserves to be there. But when you start looking at it through the lens of a place of employment, I think that's like, and, and I think that's what your sort of programmes managed to do. Well, I sort of feel that people are fed a kind of diet of a kind of certain story about prisoners all the time uh, and don't really sort of question that. Um, so I wanted to try and make the stories as much kind of present tense as possible. So I'm not so interested in why people are in prison or the crimes that they've committed. I'm more interested in the culture inside that world that the public don't actually get to see and to see how those sort of headlines that play out every day in our media, what that means in a human sense. 
So as it emerged through my research, I started to see how I might be able to theme films a little bit in a way that would address some of these common concerns. So quite often the headlines tend to circulate around violence, drugs, mental health. And I could then see a way in which I might be able to map out the series along those themes. So the first episode is about the drugs, second episode is about mental health, and the third about violence. And if I could map out that the, the series in that way, I knew the audience would be returning each week to see something slightly different, but to, in a way, flesh mm. out those headlines in very human terms and what that means for both prisoners and staff in a very real sense. And were you surprised by the levels of violence in HMP Durham? Yeah, although it's amazing how quickly you get sort of acclimatised to, to that yeah. world. I'd film Monday to Friday and I'd film pretty much all day long and probably virtually every day there's, you know, a violent incident of one sort or another. Yeah. There was always things kind of kicking off here and there. And I sort of, I suppose we got used to it very quickly, but it was only when we sort of got back after a few weeks and started to review the rushes that we'd shot, we'd go, my God, you know, <laughs> you know, it feels quite a sort of dangerous world in which to be, in which to, to, to work and to, and to live. Mm. Did you ever feel like any of it might be directed at you or you might get caught in the crossfire or were you? Well, there was a bit because um, uh, a certain point in the process, I would say to both, to all the prisoners, look, Unless I believe you're going to be a danger to yourself or to others, I'm not going to report you. I've got to re retain some journalistic independence. And so there would be times when prisoners would show me contraband and uh, let me know about things that they intended to do. And there was a moment when I think there were some prisoners on A-Wing in Durham uh, showed me some contraband. Drugs and someone had a Rolex, I think, and someone had a phone. And then independently of us the prison's intelligence unit got wind of what was going on uh, and spun all the cells on that wing. And there was one prisoner that was then isolated and put into the segregation unit. And I think word got out at that point that we were grasses. And then there was a, there was a set, I think there was some sort of threat that came through security that said um, that we were going to get, um, I think we we're going to get knifed or swilled mm. with boiling water or something like that. Right. That was the only time, uh, and actually, I, in, a, in a kind of, in a way, I sort of turned that to my advantage because then I went and shot a scene with Tony on the exercise yard in the segregation unit when I sort of confronted him with, with uh, this rumor, and Tony denied all knowledge of it. But right. so sometimes you can take a situation that appears to be going wrong and turn it to your advantage. Okay. And where does the line sit? Because I wondered watching both the documentary made in HMP Durham and also the one in the women's prison, um, HMP Foston Hall, um, when there's sort of scenes of women that are dealing drugs and stuff. And you think, do the staff know about it? Do you tell the staff? Like, is that okay to film? Yeah. How did you navigate that one? It's a grey area, but whenever we see something like that, we have to have the permission of the individuals involved. So it's there's no secret filming. So um, if a prisoner allows me to film something like that, it's something that they've considered and they've allowed me to film. And why would they? What sort of up, you know, well, what, what are they going to benefit from saying, yeah, you can film me dealing drugs, you yeah, know, would they be adjudicated? or It would be very difficult to adjudicate them because it's very anecdotal. You don't actually see any any actual drugs on camera. So it would be very okay. something that legally, that you know, there couldn't be any action taken against them on that front. 
Of course, reputationally, um, it could affect them. But I suppose prisoners, like anyone else, can make decisions for themselves. And they knew that they weren't going to be adjudicated on it. And, I, and from my own perspective, I knew that I needed to make a series that felt balanced. So that whilst officers would be telling me, you know, drugs arrive, drugs are a big problem in our prisons, I needed to show some element of that in the series for it to, to ring true to an audience. It's, it's a matter of judgment in each, in each case, but ultimately it's down to the prisoners if they're happy to have that filmed then it, yeah. you know, that, that's up to them. When you got up to HMP Foston Hall, the opening scene of the first episode, I think her name was Janine, and she said, it was a question you posed to her, and you said, what's it like here, Janine, or something? She went, well, it's like, excuse my French, fucking butlins, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, in a slightly stronger accent than I've got. Yeah. And, um, and I don't know what you thought about that, but I initially, having worked in prisons, um, sort of went, oh, Oh no, she said yeah, the yeah. thing that everyone says that we yeah. spend loads of time saying it's not like Butlins. But yeah, I love that. I love that sequence. I mean, Janine's an old timer, and you know, like a lot of old timers, quite nostalgic about the past, and actually preferred to some, or said she preferred a more authoritarian regime. But in a, for me, that sequence is really useful as a filmmaker because what's happening there is she's playing to an audience's prejudice in a certain kind of way. Yeah. And what actually happens in, in the film as you as you watch it is you completely unravel that prejudice so that by the end of it, you don't think it's like Butlins is a completely different sort of institution. Um, but yeah. in a way, it's sort of it's it's a funny moment that plays to that that prejudice that you then um, spend the rest of the time kind of upending and unraveling. And there's something kind of fun and delightful about a prisoner expressing something like that in that way which is sort of <laughs> yeah. so plays again plays with our prejudices in that in that way exactly. that, it, that it's coming from a prisoner and it's not coming from somebody outside labeling it you know without yeah. any kind of understanding you know and actually as the sort of programs go on and for those people who might be watching those programs who have no experience of the prison world when you understand the lives that the women have come from and when you hear of their histories of abuse and being raped and being beaten and this sort of relentless cycle of violence that's perpetrated against them, or quite frankly, prison is a safe place for many women. Yeah. Well, as you know, most of the women are in, in prison for crimes that are much less worse than the, the, the crimes that have been visited upon them. So yeah, it's understandable that some of the women in there see prison as a more favourable environment in which to live than the world outside. Yeah, and another inmate um, described the prison as uh, St Trinian's on crack, I think she said, didn't she? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, when you know, as a filmmaker, you're Very in there and someone gives you a line like that, you just think, oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that is gold, really, you know. Yeah. The quite important point in all the films that I make is that humour is such an important part of the story and actually, this is, again, something that I never really thought that prison documentaries really showed enough of, is the humour that both prisoners and staff really recognise in there. And actually, it's a way in which many people get through their days, like by having a laugh, you know. It's great to be able to show that different facet to prison life that is absolutely part of everyday life in there. And also, another thing I would say is that one of the wonderful, surprising things in Foston Hall that... I came across was the you know the, the the degree of tenderness that women show to each other in there, and that was another element that I felt mm. was really important to show was how 
women kind of care for each other in that world. And how did the women react to you when you turned up there compared to maybe the reaction you got at HMP Durham? Yeah, I mean, it was, it, it, you know, I'm a man uh, going into a world full of women that have been abused by men. So you, you, you know, you have to recognise that fact. And I would, I think I probably took a bit longer before I introduced the camera to build the trust that's so important uh, to mm-hmm. the films and spend a lot of time reassuring uh, women um, about my intentions, about what I was doing, that they needn't worry if they didn't want to be filmed. And if a wing or a landing felt particularly difficult, then, you know, I just decided that we wouldn't go there, you know. So I take real care over those early days, early weeks, to make people feel reassured. And I would say that it was a more, uh, that was a more demanding job in Foston Hall than in Durham. Yeah, and what were the biggest sort of differences? I mean, I as a woman, when I go into men's prisons, you know, I carry myself differently. Um, I'm more aware of what I'm wearing. You know, it's a very different experience for me to go into a prison of 500 men. You know, when I'm in the women's prisons, I just feel just like me and completely mm. normal. And mm. I'm, you know, I'm I'm not aware of all those other things. So did you, did you feel those differences sort of viscerally? It's a completely different physical environment in in Foston Hall, and I think a lot like a lot of the the women's prisons are not in those old style kind of Victorian establishments. So Foston Hall, you know, is an old stately home. So it felt very pastoral and different, and you know, like a, quite a pleasant environment in which to work. But I would say the biggest difference that struck me between the two environments was that the women get through their time in relationship with each other and right. and quite often men are more happy to isolate so there'll be a lot of conversations and um i think there was probably a quarter of the quarter of the amount of prisoners in foston hall as to durham but it would take me twice as long to move through the prison because people <laughs> right. wanted to have a chat and uh, yeah. and actually for a filmmaker like me uh, in many ways, it was a more enriching experience for that reason, because women need to communicate, you know. They need mm. to get through their day in communication with each other and with whoever else is around them. And that actually, for films like mine, perhaps make them, in some respects, a richer experience to watch, because they are character-driven and, you know, the people that talk to me offer so much. I'm obviously slightly biased about the um, trauma work that uh, you filmed going on at Foston Hall because, of course, comes from my organisation and we we put the healing trauma intervention in there. And many people said to me, God, that's amazing. How did you manage to get your work, you know, filmed? And, and I luckily was able to say, well, we had nothing to do with it at all. It was the women and the staff who told Paddy what was going on. So can you can you describe to the listener sort of how it came about? Because I was just as amazed as everyone else, really. <laughs> Well, it was such a gift, um, the healing trauma class. There were lots of staff-led initiatives that, uh, for various reasons, were impossible to to film. But what was particularly wonderful about the healing trauma classes is that they are prisoner-led. And quite early on, we met the main facilitator, Sonia Witten, in Foston Hall. And I knew immediately that that was somebody that I really wanted to film because... She was sort of quite unlike anyone else I met in there. She had turned her life completely around by taking on every 
available class, uh, qualification, exercise, anything that she could do, she did. And she was a sort of living example to the rest of the women in there that with the right amount of will, it was possible to turn your life around. And she was an extraordinary kind of mentor to other women. And she struck up a particularly strong bond with Janine Clough, who we mentioned earlier on. And Janine had a huge distrust of any kind of staff-led initiatives and really liked Sonia. So healing trauma was the perfect environment for Janine. And I was so incredibly privileged to sort of watch their relationship and their and that journey of Janine's kind of flourish in amongst those classes. And I found it a deeply moving thing to watch. And I think I heard a podcast with, so is it Dr. Covington? Dr. Stephanie Covington, yeah, the author of yeah. The Interventions, exactly. Yeah, who I remember being really struck by something she said that therapeutic work can happen in a moment. You know, it doesn't have to happen, you know, over hours and hours of a therapeutic class, but it can happen in an exchange or a friendship. And that really... Mm stayed with me and as soon as I heard her say that on your podcast I thought I really want to demonstrate that in a relationship between two women and um, the relationship between Janine and Sonia allowed me to do that and I find it a deeply moving experience filming that and watching that film. Yeah and and as you say you know with the women they do their time in relationships with each other and the way they support each other and actually that was the reason and the reason that Dr. Covington um, sort of wrote the interventions in the way that she did and the, the reason she organised them in the way that she did in order for it to be peer-led was crucial because there's no way Janine would have gone along if it had been officers running it. She and wouldn't have gone, officers, no. Yeah, and officers don't have the time to do that. You know, that's not really why an officer, a prison officer becomes a prison officer. Maybe, you know, little bits of almost the healing trauma intervention happens in their everyday lives as an officer but you know it is so appropriate and so right that the women are supporting the women because it's their relationships that matter um, and they're so able to sort of say well I've been there I know what you're talking about um, and we see that because healing trauma now is running across all the women's prisons in this country of which there are 12 and um, and we see that time and time again, you know, the importance of the group and the importance of the women helping each other out. It's a brilliant and very special initiative, and it makes complete sense uh, in an environment where many of the prisoners are deeply uh, mistrustful of authority or, or, or authority figures. I mean, that's not to say there isn't extraordinary work going on elsewhere in the prison and prisons in other initiatives or you know all across the prison estate because because of course there is but that mm. the healing trauma workshops were, were were special for for that reason and like i say it was a it was a privilege to watch yeah and it's worth saying that alongside the healing trauma interventions that we put into the prisons and now we're doing them across the long-term high secure male prisons as well um we do actually train the officers to help them some already know um but some officers need i guess a bit more education on the trauma that some of these women might have suffered um, and why that matters and actually how you de-escalate the violence before it even occurs. You know, all these things are so important because I remember one woman saying to me in one prison, she said, you know, the healing trauma thing, you know, it's great. We all love it. Everyone's raving about it. No one wants it to end when we get to the end of the sixth session, but you're missing a trick. And I said, 
all right, what's that? And she said, you really need to train the staff because, you know, the staff need to understand this stuff too. And I said, oh, actually, you know, we do have a program of work where we train the staff and then we send those trainers back into the prisons in order to train the rest of the staff. And that's been happening now for about six years across the women's prison. So so it really is a kind of, um, you know, an in it together kind of uh, piece of work, which is so important as well. Definitely. I spoke, I spoke to a lot of staff in there that had done those those courses and um, had got, gained a lot from them. I mean, it's such a striking part of being in the women's estate is is the effect of trauma on, on, on the lives of the women there. And it's it's completely inescapable. And every film in in that series in one way or another, speaks to the trauma that women have suffered. Um, and that's not to say, obviously, that men equally do suffer trauma, but it was so prevalent amongst women inmates that it makes absolute sense that the courses are specifically designed to kind of try and help with that. Exactly, and that's something we come up against a lot. And of, as I was saying, we work across men's prisons now too, and we actually now work across 17 men's prisons and 12 women. So we're actually in more male prisons now and we are women's. But it's so important for people to understand that it's not saying women's trauma is somehow more special and, you know, they deserve more care. It's the fact that trauma that men suffer is just very different to the trauma that women suffer. So therefore, if you are a male inmate or a man going into a prison, there are certain things, as you pointed out, when you go in, you have to be very aware of, because if you're not aware of them, you can accidentally turn a very normal situation into a violent one by accident, Mm. or it's enough to make that woman go back into her cell and and potentially self-harm. As a woman going into a male prison, there will be lots of other different things going on that, you know, that I'm not aware Mm. of, Mm. that I need to educate myself about being a woman in in a male prison. So it's just about saying, you know... There's a lot going on here under the surface and your sex matters, your gender matters in that sense. And, you know, and violence, we know that men tend to externalise violence and they'll lash out or they'll hit Mm. or they'll have a bit of a barney. Um, And of course, you know, the male prisons, they're more often more likely to riot. In the women's prisons, you know, us women tend to internalise the violence Mm -hmm. and we sort of take things on and we you know, are more likely to self-harm yeah. and sort of beat ourselves up about things. And it's it's just about understanding all of that yeah. and working out, therefore, how you can make your institution a less violent place, a more safe place and a better place to work if, if everyone understands these things. Sure. Actually, what you just said is very pertinent to Janine's story. And when we first met her, you know, she part of her sort of coping mechanisms is to threaten violence against other people whenever she feels insecure or not safe but actually in the course of the film what you end up watching is somebody that shouts and barks out these sort of threats but ultimately the violence she visits upon herself is you know awful kind of self-harm and there wasn't a time that we actually witnessed her being violent to other people at all so yeah what you just said does resonate and the self-harm thing actually you know it used to be very much something that you saw much more of in the women's prisons and i believe that um, all the statistics say that self-harm is on the increase in the male prisons and both in durham and foston hall obviously you filmed some fairly sort of graphic self-harm moments so i presume they were happy for that to be seen it's quite interesting yeah why they'd want that to be shown i don't know i mean it wouldn't happen in every instance and we'd be no. very careful about what we filmed and to make sure that it was all right for us 
to film. I don't know whether it's an individual wants their pain to be shared mm. in some way or be recognised. I don't know. There's just so much of it, though. I mean, God, that was that was something when I went to Durham that really completely shocked me. And I'd heard a lot about it, but when you see it in the flesh, it's it's shocking how much self-harm, you know, absolutely yeah. astounding and deeply troubling, yeah. Did your view on prison officers change by the end of doing both the documentaries did you go in with a preconceived idea i think you can't help to that you go in there with certain messages that you've received for years and years around what an officer is and this is one of the things that i would say to after being in in durham for a while i would say you know most people friends of mine would call you guards for instance you know they wouldn't call you an officer their mm -hmm. impression of what a prison officer is uh, probably hasn't really been updated enough since strange ways you know you know you just don't you know people just not aware of the job you do and staff would tell me in durham that you just can't be an officer in the old school authoritarian way it's not possible you can't run you can't lock up 200 men with six officers with that kind of attitude you know so the modern breed of officers are incredibly capable skillful people who are able to anticipate and read other people incredibly well. You know, and it's the same in, in Durham as in Foston Hall. The skills of officers running such volatile environments are really quite incredible. And, you know, their skills aren't widely recognised enough. You know, I really do no, feel... I, I, do, I really that felt is. that. And that, that really helped me to um, to make the series and because people understood that they hadn't been seen in that way and i i don't know you know I, I don't know why i mean i guess that you know they're sort of very secret worlds prisons aren't they there and and ever since i went into my first prison aged 18 i sort of thought wow you know i've just been in a place and when i started going into the um english prisons um researching my dissertation i thought you know these are places that everybody i know has got an opinion on mm. and virtually nobody's been inside them and so i was getting this amazing sort of education of being able to be inside the prisons and then I come out and listen to what people were saying about them with such authority having never been inside them mm. and I thought god this is a really weird thing and I'd have people telling me what it's like in prisons even though I just told them I'd just come out of one yeah but but for a filmmaker like me it's brilliant to have in a sense that those sets of kind of prejudices and assumptions that you can then overturn in the film that's the sort of point of the film is to take take those ideas and present something new. I mean, in a way, it was like with Durham, it's like the the prison itself and that Victorian facade is so much part of the public imagination about what a prison is. So in a sense, yeah. when I came across that Durham, it was just perfect, you know, because it says prison in such a unambiguous way is that the building itself. So you're sort of, I'm yeah. sort of playing into those prejudices. It's the same with the Butlin's comment. And then taking those prejudices and overturning them in the course of the film with the reality you actually find within those walls. I wonder if you need to do um, another... Doc well, I've got a few documentaries that oh, you yeah. need to make, actually. Oh, great. Um, so you need to do The Kids. Yeah, I know. That's um, make up a the terrible, trilogy. Yeah. terrible yeah. story, but one that needs to be told. I mean, the Chief Inspector of Prisons said, I think it was last year, Peter Clark, um, every single one of our Youth Offenders Institutes in this country has been deemed unsafe. Right which is a terrible indictment mm. um, of our country and the way we do things. Um, mm. So that would be really 
um, an important one to make, I think. And I suppose you can't really make a documentary just about prison officers, can you? I mean, I know, obviously, both your documentaries have featured the prison officers. Yeah. But at a time when I'm busy putting these podcasts together, talking about you know, this virus that's going round and, and the work that the prison officers are doing at the moment on the front line. And there's prisoners are now starting to die from it. We've just had officers die in Pentonville prison from it. And I can't help but feel very, very sorry about the fact that they are just not getting the recognition mm. and the support that they deserve and quite frankly need at mm. a time like this. Mm. Yeah, I would, um, I sort of feel like you do pick up Quite a lot about the staff experience. Although the, the films I make are kind of primarily prisoner-led, the staff interventions make for incredible scenes. But you're right, there's not, there hasn't been a film entirely from the perspective of, of staff. I'd like to make a film about how a prison is managed. All of the, the scenes that I've filmed in prison is on that front line with frontline officers and prisoners. But I, it would be great to, to try and do a film about, I don't know, maybe a new governor going in and trying to turn a, you know, a failing prison around or something like that. I'd be interested yeah. to look at it from that point of view. And yes, I'd love to make a, a series with young offenders. That's something I'd love to do. But I'm not sure when that might be possible. No, a little while yet, I fear. And then if people want to catch up and watch your prison documentaries on HMP Durham and HMP Foston Hall, where can they go well, to the, find them? Yeah, it's on the, the all four um, catch-up website. Um, you can see the Foston Hall series. The Durham series isn't up there at the moment because of legal issues, because as soon as any person in the film is charged with a crime for reasons of subjudice, we can't put a film out because it might influence a jury. So that series isn't available at the okay. moment, but you can watch a Foston Hall series. And when that resolves itself, would, would that documentary then go back up? Well, it, then it, it, I'd need to go back to Channel 4 and get a bit more investment to do all the necessary court checks to get it back up there, but I'd love okay. to do that. The legal is an absolute nightmare because you don't know right until the eve of, of uh, transmission whether you can put the film out. Those final right. court checks are just you know, terrifying from my point of view. Um, <laughs> but if people went to my website and asked to see a film, I could find a way to, to share it with them individually. Okay, and your website is? PaddyWivelFilms.com Great. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me. Thanks, Edwina. And we'll look forward to, whenever it might be, we'll look forward to you uh, fighting to get the uh, documentary made about the kids. Brilliant. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.